0: I wanted to start this talk with a a guided meditation. It'll be about five minutes or so. So if we can just get settled in our our seats, however they are. Just in a relaxed but upright posture. Feeling the support of the ground or the earth beneath you. Uh, Grounding the posture. You can start by bringing our awareness to the breath, to Anchor our attention in the body in the present moment. Noting specifically the breath uh, at its lowest point in the body, in the diaphragm or the belly, wherever, wherever that point is for you. Again, so we're bringing our attention really down into the body. As the mind and body begin to settle, can widen your attention to include the heart space area below the collarbone, behind the behind the sternum. Just inviting that part of the body into. The embrace of your intention. Could note any sensations there? It feels warm, or if there's a quality of energy or vibration or if it feels tight and constricted just just note that not not manipulating or or manufacturing the experience just opening to it Now I'd like us to imagine that the heart is actually a, a sensing a sensing organ or a perceiving organ that our heart is where all our Sensory experience is received and processed. We can imagine seeing with the heart, hearing with the heart, The sensation of your clothes against your skin is received into the heart. And if a thought arises, we can let the thought arise in the heart. How is it that a thought arises in the heart? If there is a thought that is particularly sticky and tantalizing that it pulls us up into our heads can just let let it go and let the story or the thought <clears throat> fall back into the heart heart will know what to do with it In the heart, the thought just becomes a koan met with openness and curiosity. As you're ready, you can lift your eyes or open your eyes back up. And if you're online, you can take in the screen and everybody in their boxes and, <clears throat> and see them with your heart. How is that different? Thank you for embarking on that exercise with you. Uh, What I'd like to talk about today is, I think, touches on trust, how trust develops in practice. And also, I think uh, we could... We could say going for refuge, how that, um, how that can happen. So I just want to share something of my experience of renunciation as it's been unfolding here in the monastery about that. Um, but first, now that we're kind of prepped for a koan, I'd like to re- read something from, from Dogen from the Shobogenzo, And it's not, I don't think it's strictly a koan, but I'd like uh, I'm gonna read a section of something, and I think it can be uh, regarded that way, it could be used that way. So for those of you who don't know, a koan is a, is a little teaching. Story usually a, a, a bit of dialogue between a teacher or a, or a student or a, two students um, that we can kind of drop into into our meditation and use as a a way to kind of frame an inquiry so I've been reading Dogen's Shobigenzo and I came across this one little um, passage and it involves uh, Utpalavarna who's one of um, the nun Utpalavarna who's one of our female ancestors and one of the foremost disciples of the buddha I'm not going to give any more context than that. I'm just going to read this little section. At the time when the Buddha was in the world, nun Utpalavarna attained six miraculous powers and became an arhat. She visited noble householders and talked about the life of home leavers. She encouraged noble women to become nuns. They said, we are young and beautiful. It will be hard to keep the precepts. Utpalavarna said, it's all right to break the precepts. Leave the household first. The women said, if we break the precepts, we will fall into hell. How can we do that? Utpalavarna said, then go ahead and fall into hell. it goes on from there a bit, but I, I wanted to stop there and offer this as a koan. I almost fell into hell there. Huh. And this it's a really rich passage here. It can be read. Um, <clears throat> you know, why is Dogen using this uh, particular passage in this fascicle? Why? Um, why is Upalavarna addressing the how the uh, um, the noble women this way? but I'd like to, again, take it out of its contest and let it be in dialogue with our own experience. So Upalavarna is meeting with these noble women and she's trying to convince them to leave home, to become home leavers, and enter a monastery, receive the precepts, renounce. And they, said, and they said, we're young and beautiful. It would be hard to keep the precepts. And Uttarana says, it's all right to break the precepts. Leave the household first. The noble women, my I think one possible reading of this is they're reluctant to leave home because home is uh, comfortable. Maybe it's uh, comfortable in in the way that something that is habitual is comfortable. It's familiar. They know how each day begins, how each day ends. They have certain well-defined responsibilities within, within their station as noble women, maybe. And the prospect of leaving that and devoting yourself to um, a life of vow, renouncing that habitual way of being in the world and entering into something else is scary. And it sounds like they also have an idea of... uh, of the precepts as um, as maybe a set, a set of restrictions that will be hard for them to live up to, given where they're coming from. And Upalavarna says, don't worry about the precepts now. Leave the household first. take a leap, maybe a leap of faith. And I think when we uh, kind of transfer our allegiance in Zazen from the thinking mind to here, I think there's a similar request to leave home that is going on in that moment. This is actually home leaving. For a moment, we're letting go of uh, the comfort and predictability of our own stories, which we know always how they end. dropping that and entering into another uh, mode of being, which is as Laura said last week, which is intimate, which is intimate with the arising of of experience. So I really, um, I resonate with the reluctance of the noble woman. It's hard to do that. And it's scary. And I can construct all kinds of reasons why I shouldn't do that. There's no way, there's no way I'll be able to keep that up. Maybe I can go there for a moment, but there's no way I can stay there. It will be hard to keep that precept. That's the story that is manufactured in the household. The next two lines are my favorite ones in this whole story. The woman said, if we break the precepts, we will fall into hell. How can we do that? Utpalavarna said, then go ahead and fall into hell. There's this kind of wonderful, um, well, from where I'm reading it right now, it feels almost like a, a permission. And I don't think either Dogen or Utpalavarna are encouraging us to have a a loose or lackadaisical relationship to precepts. I don't think that's the point of this. Utpalavarna is probably just using skillful means to get these women out of the household. (laughs) by the kind of permission. Okay, you break the precepts, go ahead. Fall into hell. Almost like a... Almost like a gift of responsibility, in a way. It's unclear the... Uh, the life of the noble women in the household. It seems to be important that they're young and beautiful. But this uh, permission to actually enter into a relationship with your own actions to experience consequences intimately and and kind of being able to, for the first time, own them and take, take responsibility. And for me, that is one of the I think it's one of the fruits of practice and also one of the challenges of practice is that when we either formally or informally uh, enter into a life of looking at how the self is, creates itself, how it maintains itself to our actions. It's difficult work, but it's also necessary and vital you know, uh, vital. Literally, it enlivens us because we get to be there for the for the flux of cause and effect. We actually get to experience it. and take responsibility for it beyond any idea of trying to control it. So I think the permission to fall into hell is actually a, a gift in a way in this context. we actually begin to taste uh, agency, which is, in my experience, other-powered. It's never my agency. What I experience as my agency arises in in a felt experience of relationship with others. Uh, one thing I've been practicing a lot with here at the monastery is chanting, my own chanting voice. And for the longest time, I my voice is hard to blend in with others. I guess I'm a, a tenor. And most of the time when we chant, I will kind of find what I've been doing up until very recently is finding this kind of artificially low voice that's quiet and kind of in the background. And it, it's low enough to blend probably because it's just kind of innocuous and, um, but it's not my voice and it's very um, it comes from a very tight, constricted part um, in my body. And so what I've been experiment, uh, experimenting with is actually chanting with what my body experiences as, as my own voice. And of the time, what happens is I start chanting and it sounds horrible and discordant. And I get, I get all these stories of, Oh, this is really bad. I should retreat. Go, go low in, go low in. And uh, I've been resisting that impulse and continuing. And almost every time within about 10 or 20 seconds, I'm able to go up or go down a little bit, but within my own range and find a way that blends or harmonizes with the sangha. And it's been a really wonderful experience. It feels like I'm uh, chanting for the first time some of these things. And also like I'm participating. I'm actually blending with the sangha now. Um, Whereas before I was just trying to hide in the midst of them. So there was this great sense of... uh, I know, it felt empowering, but it wasn't, but it was other powered empowerment. And so it, but it required that I make this uh, leap from a story about my own voice to, um, to a voice that came from here. That was, that was my own. and as and I've so I've been taking that same experience and bringing it everywhere what is it to meet the world from here a lot of times that Um, that move, that practice comes with a lot of pain because I'm opening my opening myself up to, uh, in, in certain situations up to pain that I've been able to navigate and control up here or distract myself from under the illusion of control. Um So kind of this opening and meeting um and meeting some of this pain in a way that feels like for the first time uh, has come with uh kind of a newfound uh I don't know, a sense of belonging in a way I can actually, um, I can actually start caring for the pain for the first time when I, um, when I make that shift. And it also feels like the birth of a new sense of trust as well. Trust that it's actually possible to relate from here. That it's actually possible to allow a thought to rise and fall in the heart. This um, this passage from Dogen comes from a fascicle called "The Power of the Robe and the Robe." And the I'll just tell it. So, <laughs> this is the rest. Um, this I'll read the rest of this passage about Upalavarna. So Utpalvarna says, then go ahead and fall into hell. Um, The noble woman laughed and said, we would be punished in hell. How can we fall into hell? Utpalvarna said, reflecting on my former life, I was an entertainer putting on various costumes and speaking memorized lines. Once I put on a nun's clothes for a joke. As As a result of this action, I was reborn as a nun at the time of Kashyapa Buddha. Because of my high status and proper conduct, I grew arrogant and broke a precept. I fell into hell and experienced various punishments. In my next birth, I met Shakyamuni Buddha, left the household, and attained six miraculous powers. From this, I know that if you leave the household and receive precepts, even if you break a precept, you can become an Arhat. And in the context of this larger fascicle, Dogen's talking about the power of, of vow, really. We vow to uphold these precepts, to live by these precepts. Then we fall away, we fall into hell. But we come back. The, the vow is vast enough to include this experience. And when we can open up, even in the moments when we fall into hell and meet our pain, even for a moment, We can trust. We can trust that we actually trust that, and the felt distance between these impossible bodhisattva vows and our lives. That distance gets shorter. Is that, as trust flowers. And we're actually with life. We're always with life. But as we fall into the experience of it, we can let go of our stories about it and that separation can fall away. So, thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.